Good morning. Thank you for having me here today. Well, I guess you didn't really have a choice. Lee invited me, and you're stuck with me. Uh, if you have ever heard, uh, or if you are familiar with philosophy in any tiny, tiny way, you may have heard of something called the trolley or trolley experiment. So I'm going to invite you to partake of this little endeavor with me this morning. So it goes like this. Imagine with me, all of you, imagine with me uh, that you are the, the train switcher. I don't know the technical term, but the person who rides next to the conductor, right? So there's always two people on the train. The conductor is the guy who honks the horn and, I guess, drives. And the switcher is the guy who would jump out, run ahead, and pull the lever that directs the train when you come to a fork. So you're the, you're the train switcher guy. And you're running ahead, and you're doing your job. You're going to pull the lever. Uh, but today is a particularly difficult day because you know that uh, your brakes are gone. So this train is not stopping no matter what. And as you look down the track, on one side, you recognize that there's a person there. And if the train goes that way, that person will get run over and die. It's a little dark for a Sunday morning. If you go the other way, there's five people on the track, and they will get run over and die. There's two options. You pull the lever, and that, that train is going one way or another, and you have to choose. The, the reason people think through this is because it's a great exercise on morality. Why, would, why do we choose the things we choose? Why do we act the way we act? And this is a very painful choice, obviously. Someone will die based on your decision. It's a painful choice, but in another sense, it's, it's quite, a, quite an easy choice uh, because we would rather sacrifice one than sacrifice the many. Where this little experiment gets really complicated is when you start to ask questions about the characters involved. Well, of course, we would sacrifice one to save five, but the question naturally arises, well, who's the one? Who's that one person on the track? If you look to your left right now or look to your right, someone in your row, would you sacrifice them to save five lives? Well, maybe a little closer. Would you sacrifice your friend? Your spouse? Your child? I think the question is quite uncomfortable. Uh, and for us, all of us would say, I, I would not sacrifice someone that I loved. I would, I would spare the one that I loved and run over the crowd. I think for us it seems, it seems so simple, but what would God do if God faced that decision? Would God spare the one he loved, his beloved son, and doom the five? What if it was the whole world on the other side? I think this little mental experiment is something that raises the question that John is trying to answer here in chapter 11 as we continue the series of John right after the Lazarus story. I have one simple idea for today, one for all. That's what you're going to learn today. We're going to talk about the story, and there's going to be two applications uh, at the end. So John 11, starting in verse 45 to 57. This is the ESV. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did. So we're picking up a story. Jesus had just resurrected Lazarus. Or to be more precise, he had resuscitated Lazarus. Lazarus would one day die again. But this man was raised four days after he died. And people are understandably, they're amazed. So after they, all these people saw what he did, verse 45, they believed in him. People want to know more about this Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some of them go and snitch. Like, they're not interested in this Jesus guy. 
Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. If all the bad guys are together, there's a crisis. They're, they're worried about losing their position. And then their leader, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God, all who are scattered abroad. We're going to come back to that phrase because there's a whole lot there. But as we keep going, from that day on, the Jews made plans to put Jesus to death. Right, this little scene, you get to peek into the layer of the bad guy. They make their wicked plan, and Jesus reacts. Jesus reacts to their plan. The word got out. From that day forward, uh, verse 54, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. So as, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're picking up verse 45, right? If you had a Bible open, you would recognize that chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus. So it's a very, very long story, and it is the greatest miracle that Jesus performed. He raised a man from the dead, and not a man who had died quite recently, but a man who had been dead four days. And this story is a, a tremendous public sign that Jesus was not just a man, like that Jesus was God, that Jesus had the power of God. He spoke the words of God. And that he was doing something miraculous. He was doing something great, blessed by God amongst the people. It's an amazing story. And the, the gospel of John is structured around seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus performed. Chapter 11 is the seventh one. The first one shows up in chapter two, right? Water to wine, healing an unofficial son, healing a paralytic, feeding 5,000 people, walking on water, healing the man born blind. And here we have number seven raising a man from the dead. These seven specific signs are given by John to show Jesus is different than you and I. You and I can, can do tremendous things. Sometimes we live in a world where we, we have great capacities, but we can't, we can't do the things Jesus did. And maybe you've experienced miracles where you're thinking, well, you know, I've prayed for someone, they've been healed. So maybe healing the paralytic isn't, isn't something that is tremendous to you. But as you add the cumulative weight of all the things Jesus did, you, you're faced with a difficult decision. Like, this guy is, is different. Am I going to follow him or am I going to reject him? And am I, I going to walk away? And John is giving you these seven signs so people, in the crowds that he was preaching to, and people like you and me have to face the same decision. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to walk away? John tells you why he gives you these seven signs. At the end of the book of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 Jesus did many other signs. So he did more than seven. John recorded seven. Why did John record seven? He recorded these seven, which are not written, or he did many signs not written in this book, but these are written, these seven are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So John has a purpose. John desires that everyone who hears this story would believe. And at the beginning of 
or at the, at the beginning of our passage, chapter 11, verse 45, we see that response. We're told, many believed. And before we start celebrating, we recognize, well, not everyone believed. Some people did walk away. And we see the same contrast that has been happening in the book of John all the way since chapter 4. Some believe and some reject Jesus. That same decision. There's two options. There is no middle ground. There's no third way. You believe in Jesus or you walk away. And some have believed in Jesus. They're recognizing that this man is, is a prophet. This man, is, is he the Christ? Is, is he God? This man is different. And there are some who are walking away. And when, when people walk away, John doesn't want you to get the impression that they're just like, they're not ready. It is an active rebellion. They're walking away in rejection of who Jesus is. And we see that these people that walk away, they don't just walk away and go home uninterested in who Jesus is. They walk away and they go to Jesus' enemies. They go to the religious authorities and they tell them what he did. And the way John writes it, it makes it seem like they're just informing him. But the, the connotation there's quite negative. They go and say, hey, listen, this guy, like he keeps saying crazy things. This guy just resurrected a dude. Like, I, are you guys going to do anything about this? People are following him. We see this rivalry very publicly. And this, this mixed response, right, of people actively following Jesus and people actively rebelling against him, we see throughout the entire book of John. One of the most visible examples for us is in chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. So he's, he's at a public feast. He's in a very public place in the city of Jerusalem. There's pilgrims from all over the nation that are there to celebrate this festival. And in the temple, there are people looking for him. And there are some who are saying he's a good man. These people are coming near to him. They want to believe. And there are people who are saying, no, he's a false teacher. He's leading the people astray. There's active belief and active rebellion. These are the two things. These are the two responses to Jesus. And that's what starts our story. And the scene shifts from Jesus' public sign, raising a guy from the dead, and then we get to be a fly on the wall in the war room. The, the religious leaders have all gathered together in a, a room roughly this size, about 70 people, and they've all gathered together because something must be done about Jesus. There is no neutral. Something must be done about this man. He compels a response. And there's three different groups of people that are represented. You have the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the high priest. If you're unfamiliar with these terms, these were parties within the Jewish religious system. So the, the Pharisees were the minority group, or, or the opposition, if you will. There was a smaller group of people. The Sadducees were the majority group. So like if we were to compare it to our government, the Pharisees would be the conservatives. Sadducees would be the liberal party. Right? There's a group that's in control and a group that opposes them. Together, they're all part of the same system. They're, they're trying to govern the nation, very much like our political system. So 70 people, and then the 71st was the high priest. The high priest was always a Sadducee. Because the Sadducees were ethnically descended from the tribe of Levi. So there was this, this group of people that have all gathered together. And if you just jumped into chapter 11, you would think they were friends. You would think, okay, they've gathered together because they have a common enemy. But if you read the rest of the Gospels, you would know that these people are not friends. They're dogs and cats that have gathered together because they both hate mice. And I guess Jesus is the mouse in this illustration. They've gathered together around a common enemy. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees could never get along because they had fundamentally different ways of understanding how God governed his people. 
The Sadducees were, were, were the more conservative group, and they believed that God had given them the Torah, God had given them the Old Testament law, and that directed every aspect of human life. The Pharisees also believed in the Torah, but they held up right next to it something called the Mishnah, something that was uh, an oral tradition. And Jewish law, they had this custom that as people understood the law, as they, they wrote down how, how they could live it out, how they could be faithful, they would add what they called boundary markers. They would add an extra law. So you know, if you're not supposed to jaywalk, we're going to put up fences along the sidewalk. The fences pre- prevent you from jaywalking. They remove the temptation. And the Pharisees had this practice of doing this, and they co- codified all of those extra laws, and they would hold them as equal to the Bible or to the Old Testament. So you can see why these people didn't get along. In any, every time they had a debate about something, they would be quoting different sources. It's, these aren't small differences between two different religious parties. These are massive differences. This is oil and water. These people don't mix. But then John tells you, no, they're actually mixing. Their rebellion against Jesus, their distaste of who Jesus is, is so great that they're willing to gather together to make a plot. And their plot isn't, isn't like, a, a, like a, a gentle thing where they're like, we're just going to, you know, quietly fade him out. You know, we're going we're gonna to write a letter and we'll post something, you know, for the people to see. Like, their plot is quite wicked. They, they actually want to kill him. They want him not just gone from the picture, but like gone from existence. And these people gather together because they have a common enemy. People who would not be friends gather together because they have a common enemy And then we get to the best part of this story, a delicious bit of prophetic irony. So Caiaphas, like I said, he was a Sadducee. He was descended from from Levi. So that tribe was the the same tribe as Moses, the same tribe as Aaron. He was ethnically the right kind of person. And he was the the highest religious authority in the nation of Israel at that time. Now his role gave him particular access to God that no one else would have. So Caiaphas was the only one who could come into the temple, and the temple had divisions. So there was an outer court, an inner court, and then the Holy of Holies, or the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. So four divisions. He could go all the way into the, the, the holiest of holies, and they believed he would actually speak with God. He would make atonement for the, for the forgiveness of the, the sins of the nation. So he would go and he would confess, like, like we did today. God, our nation has sinned. God, can you forgive us? And then he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. So this man spoke to God, and in their belief, like if, God, if he speaks to God, God can speak to him too. He's the high priest. He's the highest authority in their world, and yet this man is wicked. But John tells you this wicked man with his wicked plans spoke for God. We see this delicious twist of irony where he is doing what he wants. He's pl- plotting the death of Jesus. But yet God is working in the midst of that. I, I want to show you that the language of the passage shows uh, that though this man had the right title, he did not have the character to match that title. So John eleven forty nine 49 to 50, we'll read it again. This is Caiaphas speaking to the Sanhedrin, which is made up of mostly his people. This is him at family dinner speaking to mostly his family. And he says, this is his opening line, you know nothing at all. You guys ever done that to your family and friends when you're gathered together? How are you doing today? You know nothing at all. Get out of my face. It's a terrible way to greet someone, but it shows the callousness of this man's heart. You know nothing at all. Do you under, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
Caiaphas is doing the trolley experiment. He's like, one dies, a nation lives. This is simple math, folks. And you know, I'm sure there was someone in the room that was like, hey, like we're plotting a murder though, right? That's bad, right? That, that, that seems to be against the law, right? It's, it is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. He's like, no, 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 no. This is one man will die so that the nation will live. This is a good thing. Shut up. You know nothing at all. He's, he's angry. He, he, we see his heart. He, has, he does not have the character to match up the role he has. And yet, this type of man communicates something so clear, so gospel-saturated, that John, as the narrator, so John is telling you this story. He's the fly on the wall. He has omniscience in the story. And he says, no, no, like, you have to see this. Reader, you have to, what he said is true. Line by line, it is true. John tells us, verse 51, that Caiaphas prophesied. He, he did not say this of his own accord, like, but he prophesied. So that word, prophesied, I, I, we're going to focus in on it in a little bit. Uh, if you quickly, so leave your finger there in, in, Reve, in John 11 and flip to Revelation 10. If you go to Revelation 10, verse 11, this is an apocalyptic book written by the same author. I want you to hear this, this verse. John is saying, I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And the book of Revelation continues. And John, as the book of Revelation continues, speaks for God. He communicates things about reality from the mind of God. Things about like, what came before creation, as in Revelation 12, we see the fall of Satan. Things about what comes at the end of time, as final judgment is described in chapter 19 and 20. And then ultimately, a vision of the future in Revelation 21 and 22. John is prophesying. He's speaking for God. John is writing the words that God gives him. He's an active participant in God showing his will Two people. John is an apostle. And I want you to compare that to Caiaphas. Wicked man plotting the murder of God. Plotting the murder of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, as we read in John 20, 31. They're not the same kind of person. And yet John tells you, they're both speaking for God. Good people. Wicked people. God can use anyone to communicate his will. And Caiaphas, as he makes his evil plans, is still participating in God's overall plan. And this, I think, is a moment for us to take a quick pause and, and go really deep into, into theology. So if, if you're unfamiliar with this phrase, doctrine of concurrence, so there is a, a, a line of thinking called the doctrine of concurrence where every single human action has both a human agent and a divine agent. In John chapter 11, we see this lived out. Caiaphas is the human agent. He is carrying out his wicked plan of plotting and eventually carrying out the murder of Jesus. And God is carrying out his holy plan of sacrificing his son for the forgiveness of sins of anyone who would believe. You have two different plans, but they're working, they're overlapping. You have a human agent and you have the divine will working together to carry out the divine will. Yeah, I know this is some pretty like high philosophy, but this we see this all throughout the pages of scripture. If you go to Genesis 37, you don't have to turn there, but if you go to Genesis 37 and look at the story of Joseph, and it goes starts in 37, goes all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, that story is a massive example of this idea of the doctrine of concurrence. 
Joseph, if, if you're unfamiliar with the story, the man of, of a coat of many colors, or technicolor coat, I guess, if you're into plays, he, uh, he is favored by his dad, and because of that, is in tremendous conflict with his brothers. Eventually, they, uh, his brothers betray him, and they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. As the story unfolds, if you ask the question, who sent Joseph to Egypt, the narrative answers it explicitly. Genesis 37, verse 28 says, his brothers sold him as a slave to traders that carried him to Egypt. Genesis 37 tells us that this is what happened. But if you ask the story, ask the same question as you keep reading the story, in Genesis 45, 7 and 8, we read Joseph describing his own life. And he says, no, no, you, like, you sent me to slavery, but God sent me before you to save many lives. So which one is it? Did his brother send him to Egypt or did God send him to Egypt? And Moses, who wrote Genesis, would say it's both. It's both. God is working in every human action to carry out his will. And his brothers did a wicked thing, but God did a good thing through that wicked thing to save many lives. That same exact thing is what is happening here in John chapter 11. Caiaphas is doing a wicked thing as he plans the murder of God. And God is speaking through him to accurately communicate the gospel. When we say the gospel, we're talking about the sacrificial death of Jesus. He lived a life before. He died a sacrificial death. He resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. So if you look through the rest of scripture, right, we see this idea that Jesus died one time for all sinners. His death was effective. And his one sacrifice forgave past sins, present sins, future sins. So when Caiaphas says, it is better that one man die for the nation, he's absolutely right. It is better. God does not want to condemn people. So he sent his son to die in the place of condemned sinners. And Jesus did die. And as he died, he offered forgiveness of sins to anyone who would believe in him. So Caiaphas, a man who did not believe in Jesus, accurately communicated the gospel message. We, we see this doctrine of concurrence lived out in Genesis. We see it here again in John chapter 11. I think before we move on, I think I want to highlight one more thing. This passage is a great warning for, for people like you and me. If you know the story, if you know the story of Jesus, and if you know the story of John, he, he makes it very, very clear that you need to know things about Jesus. You actually have to believe. You have to actively follow him. But it's not just a mental thing. If you know things about God, that does not mean you have a relationship with God. It is very possible to know things and not believe. We see this in our world all the time. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is a name you, you might know if you've read anything about the new atheist. He's, he's since passed away. But the, the new atheist, so Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins are the most famous names. There's a bunch of people that wrote aggressively against religion and particularly against Christianity uh, in, in the early 2000s. And Christopher Hitchens filmed a movie in the early 2000s with a Christian pastor where they had a debate. And it got turned into a movie. And he reflected on that experience in an article. And these are Christopher Hitchens' words. A man who openly atheist. He believes Christians are stupid. He believes Christians are brainwashed people. And he says these words, Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and his sacrifice redeems our state of sin, which in turn is the outcome of our rebellion against God. 
I'm like, amen, that's what I believe. I, I believe that all people are rebelling against God. And I, I believe that that causes a, a state of sinfulness in them from which we must be saved. And I believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died so that I could be forgiven. He just described my faith. But he does not believe it. Christopher knows it, but does not believe it. John is warning us that that is a reality. Caiaphas knows what is about to happen to Jesus. He just doesn't believe it. That's a warning for people like you and me. Do I know the story of Jesus or do I follow the person of Jesus? This is a great reminder for us that you need to follow him. And then the question, of course, naturally arises, if, if I'm going to follow him, like, how do, how do I know? How do I know I'm following Jesus? Like, I, think, I think I'm following him. How do I know? If you're obeying him, you're following him. John chapter 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. People usually stop there, right? It's a great image, right? Glorify God by bearing fruit, right? That's the stuff that ends up on Christian mugs or t-shirts. It's the second half of the verse that I want to focus on. And so prove to be my disciples. Your bearing of fruit does not just glorify God. It proves that you're his disciple. It's not just knowledge that saves. It's obedience to the Lord. Knowledge leading to obedience. So, there's a warning for us, I think, here in John chapter 11. The story, as, as John records it here, ends with Jesus' response. They, so he did a tremendous miracle. People react, right? Some in active belief, some in active rebellion. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, the Sanhedrin gather, they make their wicked plot. Caiaphas speaks what he knows is his wicked plan, but God speaks through him to communicate clearly the gospel. And that story, and then the, the plot gets finalized. They will put Jesus to death. Verse 53. Like they, they are planning to kill him explicitly. And Jesus hears about this plot. And we're told in verse 54, he no longer walked openly among the Jews. His public ministry is over. It's basically over. There's a little bit more in chapter 12, but it, it's basically done. From chapter 2 to chapter 12, Jesus was a public preacher, public miracle worker, and now he's going off into hiding awaiting for his hour to arrive at the beginning of John chapter 13. This, Jesus' response ends his public ministry and is the turn in the gospel of John. And there's a lot more that we're going to learn as, as you continue in the series of John. But at this point, we can just, I think, walk away with two reflections on the work of Jesus and an application attached to each of those. So there, there are two things we can learn about the work of Jesus in this story. Now, the first one is that Jesus died for all kinds of people. And secondly, Jesus died to make the many into one. So there's two things. First one, Jesus died for all kinds of people. Right, this story begins with a very public sign. He, he resuscitated Lazarus. People responded. They believed or they rejected. And that action of responding uh, in faith, I think, is, is a reminder that Jesus came to do that. Like, that, that is what... He was trying to. He wasn't here just to say some things. He wasn't here just to die. He was here to do things and say things that forced a reaction in people. And then he died for the forgiveness of sins of those who would believe. There's an intentionality in the entire ministry of Jesus. And when we say that Jesus died for all kinds of people, what we're trying to say is that his death is effective for the people that believe. Like, those two things have to go together. Uh, there, there is a people who will misread verses in the Gospel of John. 
So there are people who will take uh, a line from, from John chapter 10, and John chapter 10, verse 16, and they'll say, Jesus came to save everybody. Like, everybody gets saved. Because he says, I have sheep in, in other sheepfolds. So if Jesus has sheep in other sheepfolds, people take that and they'll say, well, Jesus has sheep that are currently Muslim, that are currently Buddhist, that are currently atheist. And Jesus is going to go get them too, because in the end, everyone gets saved. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins for the nation. And you can see, like, the, the logic is connecting Caiaphas's line, it's better for one die, for one to die to save the nation, and with one line in John 10, 16. What this line of thinking completely misses is that the entire ministry of Jesus is forcing a response in people. He preaches, and then we see active faith, an active response, or active rebellion. There's a bifurcation. There, there are two teams. You're either following Jesus or you're rejecting him. There is no middle ground. So when we read that phrase that there are sheep in, in other sheepfolds, what, what Jesus is trying to say is there are people who are not physically in this room that will believe. There are people in the rest of Surrey that will believe. There are people where, in Abbotsford that are currently not Christians that will believe. John's point in, in telling us this story is that, hey, like, you guys, you need to go and talk to these people because there will be people that respond to the gospel. John is reminding us that the, the, the message of Christianity is a universal offer. Jesus died one time and makes a universal offer for any, every, everyone. Universal meaning everyone. Every single person should be given this message. Every single person needs to hear this message because there's only one way to salvation, John 14, 6. So when we talk about what, what did the death of Jesus accomplish, well, he died for all kinds of people meaning he makes one offer. There's one offer to all kinds of people, regardless of your religious background, regardless of your ethnic heritage, regardless of your political views, regardless of your family relationships. There's one offer made to all people. There's one God, this Jesus, and you must believe in him. So like we, we must talk to people. I, I think this is a, a challenge for people who grew up in the church. I, I grew up in the church. This is a Passages like this are a reminder that so often I think people who aren't here just don't want to be here and will never want to be here. But the reality is that there are people who are currently not here who will end up here. And the way they end up here is someone goes to them and tells them, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Because he changes everything. So when was the last time you talked to someone about Jesus? Jesus came to make one offer. Jesus died to make one offer. The second thing we learn, the second thing we learn, is Jesus died to make the many into one. There's one quick little line that I want to focus in on in, in uh, verse 45, and then we're again in verse 52. Verse 45, right, people must believe. Yes, we know that. You've said it a hundred times, Freddie. People must believe. People must respond to Jesus. But then Jesus includes a purpose statement as to his general ministry. In verse 52, he says, or John tells us, he came to gather many into one. What an an interesting phrase. What what does that mean? I I think in that verse, Jesus is speaking about the creation of the church. So before Jesus died, there was no church. There was just his followers. And then Jesus died, resurrected, ascended. And then in Acts chapter 2, God sends the Holy Spirit. 
And from that moment on, groups of people filled by the Spirit are the church. And John is saying, okay, well, what Jesus came to do is build that. Jesus did something to forgive people of their sins. And it's not, the relationship doesn't end there. You don't just have a personal relationship with God. You also have a, a relationship with a church. And Jesus is saying, well, I came to die for individual people. And then those individual people together, I make them one. I make them a church. So this, I think, holds up the two halves of Christian life. Christian life is a personal decision. You have to choose to follow Jesus. It's not just knowledge. It's an actual life of obedience, a personal choice, and a shared experience together with other people who have made that personal choice. Right? So a, a very lame example in our world is if you subscribe, subscribe to a podcast. Right? I don't know if you're a podcaster. You can blink twice if you're embarrassed. Right? People listen to those, particularly people who have you know, like manual jobs. That It's just a good way to use your time, to maximize your time. And we typically choose podcasts based on topics that we enjoy. Right? I, it's a cooking thing, sports, parenting, news, politics, whatever it is that you want to listen to for you know, 45 minutes to an hour typically, or maybe you listen to the really long ones that are like two and a half hours. But we, we pick our podcast. That's a personal choice. I'm listening to this podcast. But if we have friends that have listened to the same podcast, we also have a shared experience. And this person who lives their totally different life but listens to the same podcast, when we get together, it becomes a topic of conversation. It's an individual decision with a group experience, with a shared experience. Christian life is like that times infinity. It's not just a podcast. We follow the same God individually as we individually obey. And then we gather with people who have the same type of experience as they individually follow God. And together we have a shared relationship as we're part of local churches. And Jesus is saying, I didn't come just to save individuals. I came to save individuals and gather them into local churches. So for us, I think this is a great reminder in this passage that Christian life is absolutely obedience. It's an active response in belief. But after that, Christian life is a fellowship. It is a gathering of people. So we need to be seeking relationships with these people. Right? There, there are myriads of ways that we do this, right? Being here together is one way that you do this. Small groups, Bible studies, one-on-one uh, -on -one friendships, reading the same book together, shared devotional plans, all of those things are ways that Christians share experience. And John reminds us in chapter 11, that Jesus came to do that. He came to save you and to build a church. So be a part of that church. When, when I say that you know, the lesson for today is one for all, this is what I'm trying to say. Jesus, in his one death for the forgiveness of sins, makes one offer to all people and builds one church out of all the people who respond. This is the Christian faith. Returning to the trolley experiment, right? We said it was a painful choice, right? When no one wants to be the cause of the death of other people, but it was a simple numbers game for us. We would never sacrifice someone we loved to save a group, no matter how big. I would not sacrifice my son to save the group. 15 months old, I, if he was on the track, I would choose to sacrifice the others. But God did not make that choice. God was willing to let his son die 
his only begotten son so that this group of people could be saved, so that people all around the world could be saved. John wrote his gospel so that you might believe, and by believing in Jesus, have eternal life in his name. So have you accepted that offer? And if you have accepted that offer, are you walking in obedience? I want to pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of communion. Father God, thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to spend time here in the Gospel of John. Thank you that uh, even wicked people at Caiaphas can communicate your will to us as recorded in this book and that we can know you through this book. Father, I pray for every single person in this room. Uh, If there's anyone here who's not a Christian, Lord, I pray that you would turn their heart towards you, that like John 6, 44 says, that you would draw them to yourself. Uh, And for those who here are, are Christians, Father, I pray that you strengthen them in their obedience. Father, we all stumble in a myriad of ways, but by your spirit, Uh, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. So Lord, I pray that you help us do that. We want to be the kind of people who give glory to you in bearing fruit. So help us do all of these things. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.